Hello, everybody. This is Kevin Witham, and welcome to Season 3 of the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. Jesus valued unity and prayed for it, that we may all be one. We believe unity is best achieved through relationships rather than beginning with disagreements over doctrine, practice, or ideology. We value the gathering, breaking bread, and sharing a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage. We invite you to gather with another Christian outside your particular family of churches and tell others that unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and let's get started with another episode of the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. Welcome to Common Grounds Unity Podcast. We are on episode number 120. It's hard to believe that we've had so many wonderful guests and conversations. And today I'm co-hosting with Drew Baker who serves as CGU's Associate Executive Director and Editor of the Common Grounds Monthly Digital Newsletter. So, Drew, how are you doing? How are things going? Doing well. Uh, Really enjoying life here in North Carolina. The weather is beautiful, and so I get to be outside for my reading and writing time, and it's just pretty nice. How about you? Awesome. Everything is good. I am still in Poland doing work with churches uh, in Poland, Ukraine, and the U.S., uh, serving refugees as uh, a united front of uh, churches. So I'm super excited about that. And the weather here is super warm. So everything is good. So we're really excited today. Uh, we have Chuck DeGroat, and he's the author of five books, two of which we want to talk about today. When Narcissism Comes to Church, Healing Your Community from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse, and Wholeheartedness, Busyness, Exhaustion, and Healing the Divided Self. Chuck has a Master's of Divinity, an MA in Counseling, has studied philosophy, and has a Doctorate of Psychology. And he's a licensed professional counselor, spiritual director, and professor at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. He and his wife, Sarah, live in Michigan and have two amazing daughters. And Chuck, we are super happy to welcome you to the podcast today. Yeah, thanks, you guys. I don't think I've ever had a conversation about these two books, uh, like in tandem. So it's this is kind of fun. Well, I am super excited for this conversation. So, Drew, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, uh, I, I saw a lot of, of synergy between these two books, if that's a, the right word for it. Um, the the wholeness within and how that brokenness and dividedness can show up externally. Uh, in church. But uh, so when you're looking at these books, you wrote Wholeheartedness first a few years back, and then more recently, When Narcissism Comes to Church. Uh, Can you explain a little bit about what it is that um, inspired you to write these books and uh, what you're hoping to see uh, as people read these books? Yeah. So some people have said that maybe I should have flipped the order of them because in in many ways, wholeheartedness casts a vision for flourishing and integration that that I think uh, maybe when narcissism comes to church ends with in terms of its its sense of hope and and longing for us to live more, more integrated lives. In other words, for us to live lives of integrity. Um, I, I wrote wholeheartedness after coming out of a season myself where I was living a very divided life. Um, and through my own work, through my, my own therapy, I, mean, I, I was a pastor and a therapist and living a very divided life. And so there was, there was a lot of work to be done there. And, and it, it wasn't just the inner work. It was, uh, it was my engagement with scripture, my engagement with the Christian tradition, with poetry. I mean, I saw wholeheartedness as central to the vision of the Beatitudes and this life of flourishing that begins with blessed are the poor in spirit, uh, blessed are those who mourn, um, and and invites us to to shalom. And so um, that, that was a really important book personally. And I think when you look at it in the context of the other book, when narcissism comes to church, and you think about narcissism as living a very divided life. Because when we think about narcissism, it, it's really that the uh, the narcissistic personality is uh, a grandiose personality. It's an entitled personality. It's, 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 it's someone who, to just kind of frame it up for a moment, has likely experienced some kind of trauma that has left them self-protected. 
And so they're walled off and it's, it's almost like they're throwing, you know, bombs over the wall and, and uh, causing debris fields all around. And, and so it's a very disintegrated life. It's a very divided life. And so in, in many ways, the books are talking about different sides of the same coin. Yeah, I would just really encourage everyone to read both of these. And um, the interesting thing for me is I read them in I read them in the opposite order. I read when narcissism comes to church first, and then wholehearted. And then it was interesting to see how it's almost like uh, you're right, two sides of the same coin. Help us get a better understanding of of how like the the definition of narcissism is opposite of wholeheartedness, but how they kind of share space. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think in my work, uh, during the many years I was a pastor, certainly in my therapeutic work, um, I do see people who live very divided lives. And um, one one way we often talk about it, just in a kind of in lay person's terms in the church, is we talk about the masks that we wear. All right, we all in our own ways, wear these masks. And, you know, behind the masks are the things that we don't want people to see. Things about our lives, uh, our shame, our insecurity. Um, I'm, I'm hoping you see a, well, I'm not really, but I think there's a version of me maybe 10 years ago that would hope that you would see a very polished version of me uh, that would have all my words put together just right, that wouldn't mess up and all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, I, I think that narcissism is, is an extreme version of that metaphor of the mask, because in, in, in one sense, when you are diagnosably narcissistic, the mask is the only thing you know. You're really, you're sort of functionally cut off from those parts of you that, that carry around shame, insecurity, anxiety, pain, uh, your, your larger story. Uh, and so I, I love that you, you read the books in that sort of reverse order, Tina, because I think the vision of wholeheartedness is a vision of, of us, um, uh, particularly those of us who live out of our masks and live out of our idealized selves, um, recognizing that that there is more to us than the, the, the persona that we uh, present to the world, right? And to go on that journey of understanding the depths of who we are, those kind of subterranean levels, which include our, our stories of of anxiety, grief, suffering, pain, disappointment, sorrow, loss. Uh, uh, and, and that's a journey I think that takes our whole lives. Absolutely. So in, in your wholeheartedness book, uh, I noticed a common theme through the beginning, uh, kind of diagnosing the problem, perfectionism kept popping up. And um, I, I have learned a lot about myself through the Enneagram and I'm an Enneagram one, where that is kind of the main, main focus, the, the perfectionism and the anger when, you know, recognizing imperfection. And um, man, I just loved how that played out. Um, but then you also talk about in, I think is in the other book, uh, the narcissism, you talk about how narcissism has nine faces. Um, perfectionism, I guess you could also say has nine faces, but you write in, in your book, Wholeheartedness, the antidote to exhaustion is not necessarily more rest, but wholeheartedness. Yeah. Now, the perfectionist part of me says, okay, I'm going to fix that. And I'm going to go jump to the end of your book where it says, here's the practices to, to bring about wholeness. I'm just going to do those and I'm going to do them well and I'll achieve. But you really do a great job of warning against that at the beginning. It's not about doing things in order to make wholeness happen. Can you explain you know, what, what is the difference if you're still doing practices, yeah. if you're still engaging in any of these things, um, how is it that we're just, um, how is the focus different? Yeah, there's so much there. And, and let me see if I can sort of home in on the, the heart of it. Um, and, and I love that quote, uh, the quote that, that I found in David White's writings, um, uh, the antidote to exhaustion is not necessarily rest, but wholeheartedness, uh, came out of a conversation that he was having with, a good friend of his in the midst of a really exhausting season. And, you know, I think in my, in my life back in the day, you know, in the midst of those seasons, uh, I was determined to rest. And so, you know, I'd, I'd work really hard five days of the week and then I'd, I determined to rest really hard on Saturday and, and Sunday, you know, and, and do it right. I'd end up probably going back to work on Monday morning, more ex exhausted uh, in the long run. And, and I, what I love about the invitation there is that 
David White is inviting us to um, to live more wholeheartedly in our work and in our play and in our rest. To know, in other words, to bring our whole selves into to all of that, you know. And so, h- how might we discover rest in our work? How might, in other words, in in the practices that that I get into in the book, how might we find ourselves living more wholeheartedly on a Monday morning at 11 a.m. when we've got this sense of like, ah, the whole week is ahead of me. How do we find our way back to center, Um, back to, as Paul says in Ephesians 3, being rooted and grounded in love, where we can live from our center when it's our tendency to want to say, well, I guess I'm just going to have to bear down and I'm going to have to wear my work mask and I'm going to have to do it really. Um, And then, you know, conversely, you know, on the you know, in the days when we do find ourselves uh, invited to to rest, to Sabbath, um, can can we can we show up fully there? I, I was talking to someone about this who said, "Yeah, my my rest sometimes is like just kind of shutting down and numbing out, and uh, it ends up not being restful." So I, I, he said, "I watch seven hours of football on a Saturday afternoon." And really what I'm doing is I'm tuning out, I'm disconnecting. And I think the invitation in both is to connection, um, connection mm-hmm. to, to God, connection to ourselves, connection to one another. That's the life of wholeheartedness. And, and the point being is that we live disconnected in our work. And sometimes we even live disconnected in our rest, practices of rest. And, and that's a problem. And that's what leads to exhaustion. I really appreciated your transparency in both books. And I found myself so many times in your examples of yourself saying, oh, yeah, that's totally me. Like the one one I remember right off the top of my head was something like you had all these things to do, but you also wanted to watch like World Cup all day long. So I was trying to figure out like do all of this or all of this and then how you came to a compromise and whatever. And in my mind, I was like, I've had so many days like that where I'm just like, okay, I'm either going to really do this or I want to do nothing, but, but whatever. So I appreciate your transparency in the examples that you give, because it really helps bring these principles um, to light. Mm -hmm. And so in chapter four of wholeheartedness, it's entitled Awakening to Our Lives, A Poetic Invitation. And in it, you talk about the mask we put on from an early age and awakening to our truest selves. Can you talk about these ideas and how they help us become healthier disciples and consequently create healthier congregations? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, I love that chapter because I, I got to share some of my favorite poetry and it turned out I learned also as an author for the first time that it costs a lot of money to include poetry in a book. Um, and, and so that process became kind of complicated. Um, but I, I think sometimes the poets say it in ways that I'm, I'm not able to. And um, I, I, you know, I, I, uh, there's a poem that I share in there by Mary Oliver, uh, uh, the journey. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. You know, one day you finally knew what you had to do. In other words, that you know, that day when your your yes is truly a yes. Although the voices around you kept sh- shouting their bad advice. You know, the people around us saying, I need more of you here and you need to do more of this. And you were supposed to get that to me yesterday and that assignment is due tomorrow. And all of the anxieties that are created within our social environments um, that tug on us and, and pull us apart at the seams, right? And so I think, you know, that chapter was an invitation to, I, I would put it this way, to put it really simply, to find your yes. You know, what could you give your wholehearted yes to? So in the midst of a day when I've got a number of competing things to do, um, how have I, I lost track of my yes? You know, in, in a sense, what have I given um, smaller yeses to when I should have said no, right? Um, I, like I said yes to this podcast because I wanted to say yes to you. But I think we, we sometimes lose track of, of our lives. We let those voices around us with all their demands pull us in all these different directions. And to live wholeheartedly is to find that kind of that one thing that Mary Oliver is talking about. And um, it's not just one thing, obviously, right? But it's finding our center and living from that center. And when we're there, our lives are just less anxious, less exhausted. And and our lives may be full 
I wouldn't call my life busy at that point. They may be full, but it's a fullness that we choose because we we want to and because we're giving our consent to it. I really love that, Chuck. Thank you. Yeah, I love the the way. I think it's another excerpt from Mary Oliver where it talks of of finding yourself and having communion. You welcome that that you you welcome yourself as a stranger and commune with with yourself and. Um, sounds kind of self-absorbed if you're looking at it from one direction, but oh my goodness, it feels like coming home. You know, when you when you imagine finding uh, who God has created you to yeah. be, um, and I I love this this quote you have here: um, "Wholeness is our birthright; oneness is our most original state of being." Can you tell a little bit more about that? What do you mean by wholeness is our original state of being? Yeah, that's God created us in and for relationship, for union, for communion, for oneness, that that undivided life, you know, and uh, I think uh, we have intimations of it sometimes, you know, a, a kind of a, a haunting C.S. Lewis might say, uh, like a deep memory of 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 a time when we when we experience that sense of feeling whole or unified. I, I sometimes tell the story of, of way back in the day when I grew up on Long Island, New York, and we would go to the Delaware Water Gap and uh, it, we, would, we would camp out in our Volkswagen camper and I would sleep in the pop top and I'd see the stars so clearly and the days would be spent with friends laughing and playing and we were allowed to kind of roam the campsite, you know, and it just felt like Eden. And, and that's in, in a sense, you know, C.S. Lewis often talks about this memory of Eden that each of us has access to that that intuition of, of oneness, of wholeness, of union and communion. On that same trip, we were floating down the Delaware River and up ahead there was some commotion. And my uh, it turns out my friend Robert was sucked down into a whirlpool and, and died, um, drowned. Uh, and we found out about, I found out about that a little later. I was probably six or seven years old, very, very young. And my world was torn apart. Like, I mean, I went from Eden to, you know, Genesis one and two to Genesis three in a moment. Right. And, uh, you know, Genesis three says their eyes were opened. And in a sense, my eyes were open. And I do feel like we live in between these two realities. Uh, there are times when I feel so connected, so present, so whole. And there are times when, uh, I'm, I'm living in the tragedy of, of the, uh, the, the one, what I call the 1,185 chapters of scripture between Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, where we do feel divided. We do experience the tragedy of and trauma of everyday life. And, but, but the invitation that Jesus offers is to come to him with our weariness, our pain, our burdens, and, and to be made whole um, and to, to find him able to carry those burdens for us, right? And so that's the promise of rest. That's the promise of reunion. That's the promise of reconnection. But I I also sabotage that daily, if I'm honest. Yeah. I'm wondering, like, it's just as you were sharing in the, in the tension between wholeness and um, the narcissism that is so part of our culture now in the United States. How, how do those things, like when you're thinking about the church, like how do those things yeah. exist in, in one place and how do we manage yeah. the tension of that? Yeah. It's so interesting, right? Because uh, of, of all places, our churches should be places where we can be wholehearted, where all of us um, could might be welcomed, right? And yet, uh, for the last 10 years, after uh, many years in ministry, I've been training pastors. And, and I noticed the pull, the same pull in my own life to performative parts of me and pleasing parts of me, uh, showing up, you know, to lead, to, to be on the platform, to to speak to, and, and, and in a sense, people who come to church leave behind, you know, the hard conversation they just had and the painful tension in a marriage and the difficulty with kids. And that's how my family showed up to church. We closed the car door and we walk in with smiles on our faces, you know, and we put on our best Sunday outfits and we'd show up as our 
quote unquote best selves, but not our whole selves. And so it really is, uh, it, it really does raise questions about uh, this thing we call church. And, um, and can Jesus, I, the question maybe is, can Jesus handle all of you? You know, and maybe our churches can't handle all of us, but I think Jesus sees us and Jesus says, I, I see you. I, I long for you to be in relationship with me. I, I meet you where you are. You know, Jesus, the father met the prodigal in Luke 15 and invited him to the, to the party. I think in the same way, God invites us even in times and in places when we're not living out of those best Sunday selves. Uh, it, it, I think that's that's a big question that we need to wrestle with. The question I wrestle with as a pastor, and we need to wrestle with as churches. Yeah, I love the the image you give throughout of uh, fig leaves. You know, the fig leaves we use to cover up our our brokenness, the, the things we don't want people to see. So we put on these fig leaves or masks uh, to try to present to the world something that we think will be acceptable to them. Um, that flows out of this sense of perfectionism, um, and how how that cuts us off from true community. Um, and I love, I love how you explore those things and end up in a place where it's like, you have to be able to love yourself and all your brokenness, um, before you can, uh, really begin to live freely and wholly. Um, and one thing I I love in scripture is like, you know, where in scripture does it say you need to be perfect? Well, only one. And it's talking about that perfect love of God that loves even the unrighteous, even the ungodly, he loves all. And if you want to be like God, you got to love like him, which is loving the imperfections. Yeah. Oh man, for, for perfectionists like me, who was always beating myself up. Oh, that's just, that's a beautiful thought. And I saw that play out throughout your book. So I really appreciate that. Well, I mean, I, I just feel like our fig leaves can be so many different things, right? And, and it, it might not be the mask of perfectionism, um, or our, you know, our, our best spiritual self or our competent, you know, communicator self on stage or something like that. I mean, our, 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 our fig leaves evolve, I think, over the years. And one of the things that I've, I've talked about in, in the narcissism work is that uh, narcissism has evolved over the years. And, and uh, in the work that I do, oftentimes uh, leaders who are on the narcissistic spectrum, um, they're fig leaved masks, if you want to call them that, um, are they're often very adept at talking about their Enneagram types and their um, their personalities and their therapists. And you know, so the ways the ways that we hide are pretty sophisticated, in other words, right? And we can use all sorts of good things. Um, and that's that's the invitation. I mean, I think that's where Jesus says, you don't have to wear the mask anymore. Like you don't have to play these games with me. And isn't it exhausting? wearing that mask, uh, wouldn't it be so much more freeing to live more freely, to live more spaciously, to live more authentically? Yeah. Chuck, don't you think though that, or do you think that it seems like we're more drawn to someone though, who is acting out of narcissistic behaviors rather than someone who's acting out of wholeheartedness? And why, why do you think that is? Yeah. So there's a, there's an interesting phenomenon that, uh, a CIA profiler of all people <laughs> named Gerald Post uh, came up with where he he talks about the mirror hungry narcissist. In other words, the narcissistic leader who's looking for his or her, I guess, followers to be mirrors to him to reflect back what he wants and the ideal hungry followers. And in, in other words, the followers are looking for the idealistic person, like someone who embodies the things that they don't think they have. And so think about it this way. In our own insecurity, we look for someone who has power, you know, someone who is inspiring, someone who um, gives us some sense that we matter or that we belong or, you know, creates some sort of, you know, space in which we feel like we finally found ourselves. And, and, And in that sense, there's this reciprocating kind of relationship between the two. And, um, I think, I think for us to, uh, to grow, to mature, to become wholehearted, that needs to kind of be blown up. And we need to see whatever role we're playing in that. We need to kind of see why that works for us and how codependent we are, how we're using one another. Um, I, 
you're part of my story. I, I wouldn't be the sort of the grandiose narcissistic leader by any means, um, but I have certainly plugged into for my own sense of identity two leaders who are charismatic and who are powerful uh, in part uh, because of my own insecurity, because I always felt like, uh, you know, I, I remember playing when I was a kid, uh, playing this game where I would never be the president of the store in our little room, you know, that we, you know, when you play these games as kids, right? I was always the vice president. I never wanted to be in charge. And I always had this basic insecurity. Like, and even as I got older, there was this sense of, I need to plug into someone who has power, who has control, who has all those things that I'm missing because I don't, I'm not confident enough. I'm too insecure. Uh, I, I, that pattern had to be blown up for me uh, about 15 years ago in my own therapeutic work. Uh, and then, then it's terrifying to sort of go on your own journey to becoming wholehearted because you realize that in, in some ways these are addictive patterns that you're living out of that just don't work for you anymore. So, uh, yeah, I hope I hope even in telling a little bit of my own story, it, it makes a little bit of sense of that dynamic, you know, that we're all so prone to. Absolutely. Yeah, what you're talking about there reminds me of Henry Nouwen in The Way of the Heart. He, he talks about it as social scaffolding, uh, that, that we build up these structures um, in order to prop up our, our sense, you know, the, the compulsive self, the false self, going back to Thomas Merton. But um, he talks about, you know, if, if being busy is what gives me approval, I'm, I need to be seen as busy. If, if doing this is what gets me approval, I need to be seen. And so we constantly do these things so that others will mirror back that, that you're valid, that you're good enough. And what Nowen's pointing to, what Merton's pointing to, what you're pointing to, Richard Rohr, is you've got to find that wholeness in yourself or you're always going to be dependent on other people to tell you who you are. Yeah. And it leads us to compulsive, divided lives, yeah. um, which is just detrimental to personal health and, and congregational health yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you referred to it a little while ago, but you know, at the end of that poem, by Mary Oliver that I that I referenced earlier, she she says uh, little by little as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn, and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own. And I love that line. There's a new voice you slowly recognized as your own, as that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life that you could save. And I think I was a bit fearful of that new voice. Uh, which I slowly recognized as my own because I always needed other people's voices, you know, and uh, it's a bit terrifying uh, to, to go on this journey. And I want to acknowledge that. I mean, I think one of the interesting things to make the connection back to narcissism again, too, is they appear to be really confident, but in a sense, they're uh, really dependent. They're mirror hungry. In other words, they, they need that reciprocal relationship. They need you to reflect back to them, uh, who who they want to be, desire to be, right? And that's uh, that's a that's a desperate way of living. Um, that's a lonely way of living. And so, yeah, it's an invitation to to really to a more loving, to a more spacious life. When you talk about that kind of leadership, there's a mutual a codependency. Basically, the congregation needs somebody to appear strong and confident. The, the the preacher or the, whoever the leader is needs the congregation to think of them that way. Um, how do you, how can you break out of that pattern of codependency? And, you know, like you talk about leading from a posture of weakness uh, when, when everybody's clamoring, you got to be strong, but to follow Christ is to embrace that weakness. How, how do you break that cycle? Yeah. You guys are asking really good questions, but really hard questions. Um, that's a, that's a tough one because I, I think, I, you know, we could unpack this for, do you have two hours? Uh, because the, the very dynamics that we're talking about are caught up in larger collective dynamics. Um, you know, so in other words, um, it's not just a pastor and a parishioner. We're caught up in a larger, larger cultural forces, uh, where we find a certain sense of privilege and power. And so we find our way to spaces that reinforce uh, our ideal sense of who we are, uh, where we find some sense of power, where um, we experience the kinds of privileges that we long to experience, right? And and so in a sense, it's it's not just about us kind of dealing with this on a personal level. It's about, it's about 
us beginning to sort of deconstruct these things at a more collective and societal level. And, uh, and, and I'm afraid that th this addictive pattern goes back uh, centuries, right? I mean, there's a story that can be told uh, that goes back to um, the Emperor Constantine and his embrace of Christianity and, and, and the, the rise of priests and bishops who had power and now new influence and money and, and the, the, the positions of power and privilege within society that they found their way into and how we've sort of inherited that over the course of the centuries and the years, even into our current state, right? We don't want to give that up. We really like that power. And this plays out in, in, in the church. This plays out in politics. So when we talk about weakness on a, on a, on a very basic sort of individual le level, when I'm doing work with people, I'm inviting them to uh, relinquish uh, the masks, the ways in which they've uh, plugged themselves into others, the, the, the false forms of power that they've chosen. But in reality, that, that requires uh, them, that requires you and me to see how we're embedded in, in larger systems and structures that reinforce these things. And, and that's really, that's the larger task for the church, but I'm afraid we're, we're kind of intoxicated with power. Um, we don't want to give it up. We, we want to make um, all things great again, as we, we idealize a certain you know, day long ago where we had um, even more power than we have today and we want to go back. And it's, um, it's a real problem and, and uh, it's, it's not an easy solution, but I, I get a lot of gratification doing the work one-on-one -on -one with people. I, I love the courage that people show to step out in new ways and to, to live this in ways that are very counter-cultural. You know, you're talking about um, like the, the power that we seem to gravitate toward and uh, that is, feels most comfortable to us. So I'm just curious, like we're talking about leading from like that kind of like power or personality or like that bigness can you sum up what what it looks like for a leader to lead and live out of a posture of of wholeness of being wholehearted like what are yeah. some of the attributes that we'll see in a leader who's wholehearted yeah that's good um well i think maybe where i begin it's just maybe even to connect it back to drew's last question um, something that Brene Brown said years ago when she was talking about wholeheartedness, wholeheartedness, she said, it begins with excruciating vulnerability. And the word vulnerability is really important here. And, and vulnerability is, is sort of akin to weakness um, in, in, you know, the, the way the Apostle Paul uses it. Uh, the, the word vulnerability comes from the Latin vulnerare, which is to be wounded or capable of being wounded. And so, you know, when, when we live in a way um, that we're more surrendered, where we're apt to sort of give ourselves away in love, we, we will get wounded. You know, um, C.S. Lewis says, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Um, so if you don't want to love, shut down your heart, um, self-protect, you know, insulate yourselves, um, hide, put up those defensive walls um, like we'd see in narcissism. And and it so the, the invitation for us and to us is to come out from behind those walls. But if we do, it's not safe all the time and we will be wounded. Um, but we have the possibility of meeting one another there too, which I think is, which is the great opportunity, right? I think that's at the core of, of Jesus's invitation to follow him. Um, there, there was this sense, it begins with blessed are the patokas in the Greek, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, blessed are those who come to the very end of themselves. Well, that's painful. And I'm sure his first disciples did not expect to hear that. I'm, what I'm sure they expected to hear was blessed are the powerful. I have come to give you power and we're going to take on Rome and we're going to put together an army and we're going to conquer. And Jesus does the exact opposite. And, and so I just think that that's, that, that, uh, that mentality, if you want to call it that is, is really challenging today when we're practically, as I said earlier, intoxicated with privilege and power. Do you think that we always see wholeheartedness as a lack of strength? 
Like we know that like someone's powerful, we see them as strong, but can we also see wholeheartedness as strong? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a strength that emerges from a deep center, though, you know, because I think the sort of faux wholeness that that we're talking about is, uh, you know, the, the, what we see in narcissism is a, a is a faux strength. You know, it's uh, it's a defensive posture. It's a walled up way of living. Um, it's it's living from a protective armor. And, and in m- many ways, that's how we live when we wear our masks. You know, I'm. I'm going to show up as the whatever version of me that you guys want on the podcast. And I will, you know, I will perform and I will please. And but then I'll walk away from this feeling kind of blah, you know, kind of empty. Uh, That's not a very empowered way of living. Right. And so um, I do think that there's this journey that Jesus is inviting us on. And this is where the Beatitudes are just so beautiful and brilliant um, that turns us inside out and requires transformation. And that's a lifelong journey. I mean, I'm 53 and I, I think I had this sense of, well, when I'm 40, I will have figured it, well, maybe 45, certainly by the time I was 50. And I remember sitting on a beach on my 50th birthday feeling like, oh my goodness, I'm not there yet. Um, and it was a very like strange and terrifying feeling. And, uh, and it was a beautiful moment where I just had this sense that God said, you're okay. You're right where you need to be. Like, this isn't a race. Just show up, uh, bring your whole self and we'll figure it out. Yeah. I was thinking as you're talking about, um, you know, being able to, to serve out of a, a centeredness and, you know, John chapter 13, where, where Jesus is about to wash the disciples feet. I love the way it sets that up. It says, Jesus, knowing that he'd came, come from the father and was returning to the father, knowing that he had put everything under his feet, got down and served and washed his disciples' feet. And I think too often we try to force servanthood when we don't have that confidence in who we are and it just becomes subservient and, yeah. and placating and, um, you know, your unhealthy Enneagram two that who needs to be able to serve people in order to feel good about themselves. And yeah. But, but the model of Jesus is, you know, you, you know that you are valued, you are good mm-hmm. enough. And if you feel that, then you can give freely and not have to, to worry about how it's received yeah. or how you're perceived. Yeah. That's, a, that's a beautiful place to be. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I, I would even go so far as to say that that's a pretty normal part of the developmental process that we all have to, to figure out, tease out in our lives. Um, I've, I've done some work on this too, uh, and and uh, in and through, of, of all things, um, an ancient saint's uh, book called The Interior Castle, St. Teresa of Avila, and um, these seven dwellings of, of, of the interior life, and it very much parallels um, stages of the, the spiritual journey that others have talked about. Um, and there are these early stages where we're simply trying to figure it out, do the right thing control reality, serve out of this, this sense of obligation, you know, and I do think uh, there, there is something to that, 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 you know, it lasts a while. I I do a lot of work with uh, younger pastors and, you know, 30, 35, they start to get to that place where it's like this, this is sort of working for me for a while, but I'm getting really tired and uh, uh, people aren't happy with me. And uh, I'm, I'm becoming more reactive or more angry, or I just don't feel like myself. And that's when the conversation begins. I, like, I get excited about those conversations. Like, okay, here we go. Let's, let's name the masks that you've been wearing, in a sense. Let's name, name, uh, let's name the things that you've been avoiding. Maybe the parts of you, you know, what Carl Jung called the shadow side. You know, those parts of you that maybe you haven't wanted the world to see. You know, and they'll, they'll start to confess. They'll start to tell me, like, Actually, I'm pretty terrified every Sunday when I get up. And actually, every Monday, I wonder, is this the morning the shoe drops? And I'm told that I wasn't good enough. And and actually, I live with a ton of shame. Okay, that's great. Like, welcome to the feast. Welcome to the party. You know, now we can have a conversation. So with all of your experience, Chuck, working with leaders and in your um, research and work on narcissism and wholeheartedness. What are some things that you could give as like advice or observations 
to church leaders or church members about how to cultivate this wholeheartedness within our churches so that so that we are healthier version of Christ church as we try to live out the good news in a really broken world that's looking to the church for something like wholeheartedness versus narcissism. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I would begin with as I often do, just inviting leaders to do their own work first. I mean, I oftentimes I'll I'll go into a church and do a little consulting and they'll say, well, let's come up with a strategy so that we can, you know, deploy wholeheartedness into our congregation. And um, I'll be like, why don't you just do, do your own work with, you know, a therapist and spiritual director, or maybe you find someone who does both and, and just do your work for a year and see what happens. And because I, I'm pretty convinced that we as pastors, leaders, shepherds, whatever you want to call us, uh, in, unless we are beginning to experience, it's not like we've accomplished it, we're there, we, but unless we've started to experience that sense of inner freedom, spaciousness, wholeness, um, there's not a whole lot that we can commend to someone else. You know, it's it's just another word. Uh, it's just another strategy. Um, and I do think it's slow. I mean, we want all these things to be microwavable nowadays, but I would, I'd tell folks that, you know, the, the way of, of Jesus, the way of discipleship, the way of transformation is, is more like a crock pot than a microwave. Um, uh, we're, we're slow cooked. And I don't, I don't think we necessarily strategize our ways, uh, our way to wholeheartedness. In fact, I think oftentimes we, uh, stumble our way, we fail our way to wholeheartedness. It's when we're, we're stuck, we're caught, we're trapped, we're, we're despairing, we're desperate, we're overwhelmed. Um, that's when we, we're finally maybe motivated to explore those parts of us that we that have gone unexplored. And it's the same thing, by the way, with the church. It's in moments of, of reckoning that we're in now where we're able to begin to name the shadow side of the church. Like we've wanted to think that the church is on mission and we're doing these great things in the world. And well, what if, what if our understanding of mission is conflated with a kind of colonialism that's really kind of toxic. And um, what if we need to interrogate um, some of what we've called mission? mission and uh, I'm hesitating because that's a complicated conversation to have, but you know what I'm talking about. It's like that's, that's we begin to pursue those paths. And uh, that just, you know, that's not strategized. That's, that's sort of uh, it's it's messy. Maybe that's why I'm a therapist, right? Because I like the messy process, and it's uh, you know we're never sure how how long it's going to take, but it's it's often just honoring the honest conversation. What's what's coming up in the moment? I really love uh, what you're saying about. It's, I like how you're talking about it's being a long yeah, and it's not just a strategy that you can deploy into into things. And I really appreciated what you said in your book about if someone in the congregation is seeing something that looks like narcissistic leadership, whatever, um, something about them starting their own work to be able to step into a, a process of bringing that whatever. But I love it that it wasn't just immediately like take someone with you and confront that person. But the encouragement that you're giving for us all to do our own work first, because it it is so important, yeah. and I really appreciate that encouragement. Yeah, in your narcissism book, you you speak directly to those who have been negatively affected. So I don't think uh, we want to end this podcast before we get a chance to speak to people who have suffered from the non wholehearted, the narcissist leader. Uh, could you speak just a little bit to to the people who are listening in and have experienced the in, intense pain and, and trauma yeah. from uh, being in a relationship with a narcissistic leader? Yeah. Well, so uh, you, you just used the right word, trauma, you know, and when we talk about trauma, trauma is not necessarily what happens to us, but the, the imprint that remains within us. It's what we carry in us, uh, the pain, the embodied pain, the emotional pain of what happened to us. And, uh, that's where we need to begin to do our work. And that looks different for lots of different people. But I think when we experience particularly the pain of, of narcissistic abuse within churches, spiritual abuse, it's really confusing uh, because it's coming from someone who has authority. It's coming from someone who says, thus 
that thus says God or the word of the Lord or whatever our words are, our phrases are, right? And so it comes with a kind of spiritual authority and that's really confusing. That's really crazy making. Um, and so par part of the work, particularly with trauma, you know, trauma is, is, a, is, is a very alienated, estranged, disconnected place from God, from each other, from oneself. Part of the work is inviting someone to become reconnected to who they are and what they're feeling um, what their body is telling them. And, and oftentimes they've been told not to trust what their body is telling them, what they feel, right? These are bad things. And so that's a, that's, that's a work that happens. It's a sacred, really sacred work that I get to be a part of behind the scenes in the, in, in the therapy room where people start to reconnect with, oh, that, that hurt. Ouch. That was, that was really harmful to me. I didn't realize that my pastor was manipulating or coercing me. I didn't realize that we were being asked to do things that were, were actually harmful or toxic. Didn't ask that I was, didn't realize I was being asked to stay in a marriage where, um, where I should just take his beatings, whatever, whatever it is. Right. Um, these really meet us, um, in the kind of the stories of our lives. And so it's courageous work. And I just invite your listeners to, to begin to go on that journey. Sometimes that means, uh, seeking out a trauma-informed therapist or trauma-informed spiritual director and just beginning to tell your story. Uh, there, there's not a whole lot you need to do. You don't have to prepare a lot. You just bring yourself and you bring your story and uh, and then we, we do the work together. That's awesome. You know, today we've been talking with Chuck DeGroat um, about two of his five books, When Narcissism Comes to Church, Healing Your Community from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse, and Wholeheartedness, Busyness, Exhaustion, and Healing the Divided Self. Chuck, is there anything that you wish that we had asked you that we didn't? Any like thing that you would just like to, to highlight from, from what we've talked about or, or, or what you'd like to share? No, no. Uh, I'm just, I'm grateful. I'm, I think I told you at the outset, this is the first conversation I think that I've been invited to that puts the two books in conversation. And I was more nervous coming into today than I am uh, doing some of these conversations sometimes because it's like, wow, okay. So I, I know I've thought about these things, but I don't often talk about them. Um, I, I do think what's encouraging about uh what you picked up on is that there is this, we can become really enamored with these conversations of a narcissism and abuse in the church. And, and we can become really cynical actually in the midst of it all, but there is this wider, larger, more spacious invitation to a life of wholeness. And that's available to yes. us. Uh, I, I, uh, I wish sometimes I'd be invited to talk about wholeheartedness more than than I am. I'm often more invited to talk about narcissism in the church, right? But thank you. Thank you for that. And and yeah, to your listeners, um, maybe if you've engaged some of the narcissism stuff, maybe it's time to find your way to uh, my book on wholeheartedness or other resources that invite, invite you to this more you know spacious life. Yeah. Drew, any last thoughts you have? Oh, no, I'm just so thankful for you, Chuck. Thank you for the work that you've been doing, uh, all of the ways that you've been blessing people through your your joint work with you know, counseling and in uh, pastoral work and in your authoring. You're, you're such a blessing, and I, I thank you for that work and, and for your vulnerability uh, that you're able to, to be talking as the expert and say, I was nervous about this conversation. I think you're modeling uh, what we need to be trying to do, except that um, accepting that we are vulnerable and we are weak and we don't have it all together and that's fine and it's yeah, good yeah, and it's beautiful. Yeah. So uh, thank you so much for yeah. not just teaching, but exemplifying yeah. that for us as well. Yeah. So Tina, are we going to do this lightning round? Okay. So we're almost out of time. So let's just pick three questions and I'm going to do the first one because I've been dying to know this whole time. What is your Enneagram number? Yeah, I identify as a four. Ah, interesting. Okay. Yeah. All right, Drew, now you. That is interesting. I wouldn't have guessed that. All right. I was actually, that was the, the one I wanted to know. The, uh, <laughs> we can talk more about so, that. Uh, <laughs> okay. This 
this goes back to when you're talking about you know not microwave but crock pot you know i've been smoking meats lately so what is your favorite smoked meat <laughs> oh uh i maybe i'd say a brisket beef brisket really yes. good. excellent you passed okay. <laughs> okay and so i'm gonna go back to your enneagram number so as a four what's your favorite thing about being a four or identifying as a four Oh, yeah. Well, you know, we live in tragedy and and in and, and pain and in, you know, lack of belonging. And, you know, so my favorite thing is just living in all those things. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I was like, he's crazy. <laughs> I was like, that's surprising. <laughs> I actually learning about my fourness. I was introduced to the Enneagram in the late ni- 1990s. So I've been sitting with it for a long, long time. And, um, and, it's really helped me to, to notice how I do live in that sort of that that story of a lack of belonging, a lack of enoughness. And it's invited me to see that I belong and that I'm enough uh, in God. And so that that's that's as simple as I can put it. That's awesome. Well, to our listeners, we are glad you joined us today, and we hope that you've benefited as we have from uh, this material from Chuck. Uh, I encourage you to read all of his books, but today we've talked about When Narcissism Comes to Church and Wholeheartedness. And, um, you know, our goal here and vision is to create and support gatherings of unity-minded Christians around the globe and imagine the good news of these gatherings modeling the prayer of Jesus in our divided world. And if you're benefiting from this ministry, then please consider a monthly donation and you can find a link in our show notes. And we hope that we see you back next week. Chuck, thanks so much. Drew, good to see you again. And to our producer, Chuck, we're so glad you were with us today. Me too. Thank you for listening to the Common Grounds Unity podcast. Please check out commongroundsunity.org to learn more about who we are. You can subscribe to the essays, join our Facebook group, or find our YouTube channel. And please check out the gatherings page where you can connect with other unity-minded Christians in your area. If you want to volunteer or ask questions, please email john at commongroundsunity.org. And lastly, we need your help by donating to this ministry of reconciliation. Your donation is tax deductible. Links for donating are in the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless. And remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee.